ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hi, I'm Una Chaplin, and I'm the host of a new podcast called Hollywood Exiles. It tells the story of how my grandfather, Charlie Chaplin, and many others were caught up in a campaign to root out communism in Hollywood. It's a story of glamour and scandal and political intrigue and a battle for the soul of a nation. Hollywood Exiles from CBC Podcasts and the BBC World Service. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. Hi, I'm Derek O'Reilly, and for over 30 years, I've been a licensed London taxi driver. For 20 years, I taught the knowledge to prospective London cab drivers. During this podcast, I'm going to be joined by experts who are going to bring the forgotten and secret history of London to life. Today, we're going to discuss the City of London, that great financial centre. Hi, today I'm joined by a very good friend and a very knowledgeable person. Hello, I'm David Charnick. I guide extensively in Tower Hamlets, the original East End, but I'm also a qualified City of London guide, and I teach tour guiding through the London Borough of Tower Hamlets. Well, hello, David. Once again, we, we meet to have a general discussion. Hello, Derek. Always a pleasure, as I said before. Now, today what I'd like to do is I'd like to talk about the City of London. Yep. Um, so I know you're a tour guide in the city. Mm-hmm. So can we start off by street names? Some yep. of them have got fascinating street names. Mm-hmm. Milk Street, Bread Street, Lombard Street, mm-hmm. Old Jewry, etc. Yeah. Um, we won't go through them all because there's too many. We'll be here for oh, hours. Yeah, absolutely. Can we just pick a few up? Let's start with Love Street or Love Lane. Well, Love Lane, uh, leading off of Wood Street, round by the old uh, city police station, uh, is said, and I won't go any more definite than that, but is said to be named after the, the service that was on sale there. Because Wood Street itself like Milk Street, Bread Street, Honey Lane, uh, they lead off of Cheapside, which was a big market street. And also Friday Street, of course, which is where they sold fish, because being a Catholic country in the Middle Ages, we ate fish on Fridays. Uh, So all these streets were named after the commodities that were sold there. And as I say, Love Lane is believed to have been named after the service that was on sale. Right. I did have my suspicions that that's probably where where they were named after. (laughs) Mm. And then sort of moving on um, to sort of Old Jewry, Lombard Street, I believe it was Mm. called Lombardy Street at one time. Can we have a little chat about that? Yeah, they are linked by the practice of money lending. Because in around about 1070, give or take, uh, William I invited a number of Jewish merchants to come over and settle in London. And there's no evidence of any Jewish settlement in England before then. And they were invited over to practice their trades, but also to lend money. Because in those days, the way the law worked, Christians couldn't lend money to other Christians on interest. You could lend money, you couldn't charge any interest, uh, which meant there were no business loans because you're not going to lend money to another business if you can't get any interest out of them. But the Jewish merchants were outside that prohibition. 
And so they came over, or were invited over, in order to become moneylenders. The thing is, though, it was okay to begin with under the Norman kings, but as you go through the 12th century, they enjoyed less protection, less royal protection. And basically, people weren't paying their debts back. Essentially, the attitude was, they're only Jews, why pay it back? Right. Okay. By the time you get to the 13th century, they're becoming increasingly inefficient as moneylenders. By that time, these wily Italians from Lombardy in northern Italy had worked out a way round the prohibition. They didn't charge interest. They used creative accounting to get the money in. And in that way, they were able to function as moneylenders. So they came in. They were the new moneylenders. And, uh, and so they settled in London. Now, old Jewry relates to the area where the Jewish merchants were settled in the Norman period. And also Jewry Street down at Aldgate is believed by some that that's where another area was where they were settled. And Lombard Street, the home of banking in the city of London, is where the Lombards were settled, the Italians, because they brought Italian banking practices to London. Okay. Now, another thing is I travel around the city with my mm. passengers. One of the first things that happens, particularly obviously with non-Londoners, is I say to them, oh, we're now entering the city of London. And they sort of often say to me, but we're in the city of London all the time, mm. aren't we? Can we explain the difference? Yeah, the difference is the sea. Uh, the city with a small sea, the city itself, London is a big city, a major world city. But city with a capital C is the ancient heart of London. London has been going for nearly 2,000 years, basically since the Roman invasion of 43. That's when the timeline starts to begin. But for about three quarters of that history, the city was a small walled area. That was London. It's only really in the 17th century that you start getting development outside the wall, as it were. And so the city then is the, the historic heart. But it's always kept that independence, that Where's autonomy. Where's the parameters of the city? Give, give, us, give me a rough guide to where you see the parameters. Right. The, they're easy to find because as you approach them, you see these silver dragons on posts saying, City of London. And so you know you're actually entering the city. Now, they extend beyond the area of the old wall. I mean, you can trace the old Roman wall that was erected around London around about the year 200. But the authority of the city goes beyond that. And as it happens, in 1994, there were some boundary changes, and uh, so it changed yet again. So, yeah, it's just beyond that. So effectively, the square mile. So it's roughly a square mile in old money. Now, um, I was fortunate enough to live for many years just outside the city, mm -hmm. uh, at Allgate there. Yeah. And um, I no always used to see the sort of alderman. Now, mm. can you explain to me what an alderman is and what his role is in the city? Well, as I said, um, London, the city, has always uh, cherished its independence. And the aldermen were the magistrates of the city of London. So the city itself wasn't governed by the magistrates of Middlesex. It had its own magistrates called aldermen. Now, they're not magistrates anymore by virtue of their position. They want to become magistrates. They could apply like anybody else. Um, but they are the administrative heads of the wards. 
Cities divided into 25 administrative districts called wards, and each one is administered by an alderman. And one of those 25 is the Lord Mayor of London. Right. Do the aldermen have any powers today, or is it purely ceremonial? It's essentially ceremonial and administrative. Uh, they are involved in the governance of the city, you know, how it works and administering and that kind of thing. But they don't anymore have any judicial functions. Uh, although I believe the Lord Mayor still has the function of a circuit judge. If you go right. to the Central Criminal Court Old Bailey, which is in the City of London and is operated by the City of London, the courtrooms have the the, the chairs or thrones for the judges and if you go to the big courts, like court number one, the middle one is never sat on because that's the Lord Mayor's throne. Oh, right. That's interesting. So you see the judge sitting next to it. And technically, the Lord Mayor is entitled to come along and act as a judge. Although if he or she should choose to do so, they would be accompanied by an actual judge who would advise Right, yeah, that would make perfect sense. Mm. Now, another thing I find fascinating driving around the city is the churches. Yeah. There is an unusually large number of churches. That's right. Not as many as there used to be. I mean, before the Great Fire of London of September 1666, there were over 100 parish churches in London. Now, bear in mind how small the city was. Yes. Yeah. Carving it up into over 100 parishes. But each parish was its own little independent community. But not all the churches destroyed by the fire were rebuilt, so that took it down to about 87. Right. And then, of course, the Second World War saw a lot of damage to churches, and not all of them were rebuilt. So there's just over 50 parish churches in the city now, but they are interesting. Yeah, and they all have so fascinating names, you know. I mean, again, I won't sort of delve into every yeah. single one of them, mm -hmm. but um, let's talk about St. And I have to correct me if I pronounce this wrongly. Yeah. St. Sepulchre's. St. Sepulchre. Mm. Now, the, originally that was the Church of St. Edmund, King and Martyr, which was our original patron saint in England before we had St. George foisted on us. But then the Knights Templar came along, one of these crusading orders of knights, and they got some land which became known as the Temple. So you've got the inner temple, the middle temple now. Uh, that's where they were. But originally they didn't have a church. And so they used that church and they rededicated it as St. Sepulchre. So it's got the strange distinction of a church being dedicated to a building rather than a person. And the dedication is after the church of the Holy Sepulchre in Jerusalem. And so that was the Crusaders, sorry, that was the Templars church until Temple Church was built in the 1180s down at the temple. Oh, right, okay. And um, moving on from the churches, we've mm -hmm. got so much to cover in the city. It's yes. a fascinating <laughs> place. Um, let's talk about city livery companies. There's a lot mm. of city livery halls. Yeah, there are. Um, again, the there's a load of livery companies and they don't all have halls anymore for various reasons. Well, I'll, I'll tell you but, now, I was a member of the Worshipful Company of Hackney Carriage Drivers mm -hmm. for many, many years. Yeah. And obviously we didn't have our own hall. So when yeah. we had a dining evening, we would use other companies' halls. And I have to say mm. internally, they're absolutely stunning buildings. Mm. So yeah. what's the story behind them? Well, um, the, the livery companies, they were trade guilds as they started, but they were given livery status, which meant that they had a role in running the city and that kind of thing. Um, 
going back to basics, they were started as trade guilds that would regulate trade in specific commodities or services. So, for instance, the cooks, they're providing a service, and the hackney carriage drivers are providing a service, whereas the butchers and the mercers and the fishmongers and so on, they are dealing in a commodity. Now, they grew up and they regulated the trades and also protected them. They were based on fraternity. So if you had a member whose premises caught fire, for instance, or whatever, uh, the company would help them. And the company would have arms houses that would help uh, former tradespeople who were too old or too infirm to carry on trading but had no visible means of support and so on. Um, but when they got their livery status, uh, the livery is a reference to clothing. Yes. You know, a specific set of clothes designed to show which was your company. So you were entitled to wear that on ceremonial occasions. But also it meant you had a royal charter, a special authority given by the monarch. And it was from the livery companies that aldermen were selected. Originally, it was just the the big 12 uh, starting with the mercers at number one and the grocers at number two and so on, uh, they provided Lord Mayors. So uh, the Lord Mayor is an alderman. And so originally it was just the, the top 12 that provided the Lord Mayors, although that was to change over time. Right. Can you explain the phrase at sixes and sevens for me? The phrase at sixes and sevens, this is one of those stories that I have to say is true and not true at the same time. Um, let me explain this. In the Middle Ages, all these companies were coming into being, and of course, each one thought they were better than the others. And in those days, when you had the Lord Mayor's procession, like the Lord Mayor's show, we would call it these days, it wasn't on the streets, because the streets were really crowded, poor conditions, that kind of thing. It was on the Thames. Oh, right. Because most people actually moved by river. It was much quicker than going along the streets, which were usually rutted and crowded yes, and yeah. so on. Um, and so the Lord Mayor's barge would be accompanied by the barges of the various livery companies. What, in running order? Well, this is the thing. There was no set order originally, uh, so the, the favoured barge would be obviously the company to which the Lord Mayor belonged. Right. Um, but because uh, you needed to be a liveryman, a member of a company, to become an alderman, and you needed to be an alderman to be the Lord Mayor. Um, but there was all this um, toing and froing, and they were literally barging each other out of the way with their barges, um, and it was becoming farcical. So in the 16th century, the the order of precedence was established. So with, as I mentioned, Mercers at number one, dealing with luxury imports and exporting wool, which was at the heart of the economy, the grocers at two, drapers at three, and so on. And that was the established order of precedence. But two of the companies, the Skinners and the Merchant Tailors, weren't having any of this. They weren't going to be told that either of them was better than the other. And so there was all sorts of unpleasantness. And the upshot was that an agreement was made that they would swap. So every year, one is number six, one is number seven, and then they swap over the following year. And that's been going on for several centuries now. And they have a dinner every year. And at the dinner, there are two gavels 
things that auctioneers use. One's got six written on it and one's got seven and they literally swap them over. The masters of the two companies swap them over and then they change in the order of precedence and the following year they change again. Fascinating. Now I said it's true and not true because there are people who will tell you that's where the expression comes from to be at sixes and sevens. Trouble is, that expression is used by Geoffrey Chaucer in Troilus and Crusade, uh, a narrative poem he wrote in the 14th century. So that's two centuries, give or take, before the order of precedence was established. Uh, so right. it's not where the expression comes from, but it fits in nicely. Yes, with it, absolutely. It yes, it does. Mm. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And the city has its own police force. Yeah. The city. Uh, like all the other parts of England, was governed by a watch. So you'd have a volunteer service of watchmen. Um, every householder had to do a bit of duty as a, watch, a watchman, and you would just patrol the streets at night. But it was very inefficient because you tended to get people paying other people to do it for them. So you get the same people doing it year in, year out. Uh, but the city decided it should pay its watchmen. So they would get uh, a little payment. And then in the early 1700s, moves were made to effectively create a police force. And so when Sir Robert Peel, as Home Secretary, created the Metropolitan Police in 1829, effectively the City of London already had a professional police force, had a day police as well as a night watch service. Now, the city has always been very careful about its independence, its autonomy. And it didn't want its police force controlled by the Home Secretary. It wanted to be controlled by the Lord Mayor and the Alderman. So they resisted the calls to be incorporated to the Metropolitan Police. And politicians didn't like that. And they thought the city would become uh, a haven for criminals. They would be driven out of the rest of London. And one actually said it was like a dog with fleas. If the dog jumps in the water, the fleas rush to the dog's head so they don't drown. And that's what it said would happen with the criminals of London. They'd all head for the city. So inevitably, good old British compromise was, really, was reached and the City of London Police Force was reorganised along Robert Peel's lines, but still as an independent police force. And they still are. Yes, yeah, I'm aware of that fact, yeah. And the bridges um, that mm. link the city to sort of Southwark, etc. Yeah. Can we just quickly touch on those and their importance to the City of London? Mm. Well, one of them is very important, that is London Bridge, and it's called that because it was the original crossing of the Thames when the Romans arrived. And it was the fact that the Romans had to build a bridge across the Thames and had to guard it with a little military camp at each end that we get London. Because there was no London before the Romans came. There was just fields and woodland in the distance. But the Romans, as I say, they put a military camp at each end of the bridge. And around those camps, especially on the northern side where the ground was firmer, the merchants and traders would come and settle. And archaeology tells us that they actually lived there with their families. They didn't just come in to trade and went out again. They lived there. So that's the nucleus of London. So it's a trading city from the outset. Um, so London Bridge, although the crossing point has changed over time, uh, was the original bridge. But then you start getting others. You get Blackfriars Bridge, because um, the, the, that came along in the 18th century, like Westminster Bridge, because the bridges were resisted by the watermen. 
These were the cab drivers of the day, if you like. They would ferry people across the river and up and down the river. And of course, for a fee. Yes, yeah. You put a bridge there, someone can walk across the river for free, you're taking the money out of their pockets. And so they resisted it as long as they could, uh, which is why it took so long to get another bridge. So, um, as I say, from the original Roman London Bridge round about 43, the next bridge is 1,700 years later at Westminster. So it shows how long it took. So then you get, obviously, Blackfriars Bridge, as I say, which is in the city, and Southwark Bridge and so on. And then, of course, Tower Bridge, which is technically outside the city, but comes within the city's remit, which is, well, for a start, it's an impressive piece of Victorian engineering with the... Um, Bascules, the, yeah, the the moving yeah. always takes my breath away when I drive over it. Marvelous bridge. Oh yeah, and take it away yeah. even more if you went across while it was opening. Well, yeah, I've seen it open a few times when the traffic <laughs> comes to a standstill, which can mm. be a pest. But I mean, it is a iconic thing, and a lot of tourists when they get in the taxi, one of the things they want to see mm. is Tower Bridge. Oh yeah, mm. um, but that was put there because of the growth of London as a port and an industrial area on the back of the port. So you needed cross-river communications, and uh, London Bridge was beginning congested. And so the upshot was that um, they were thinking of a tunnel. It'd be very expensive. Yeah, and yeah. then suddenly someone came up with the idea, what about a bridge that moves? One of those ideas that once someone's had it, you think, why didn't we think of that before? Yeah, <laughs> it's quite yeah, obvious, really. Yeah. Uh, so that's why you've got a moving yeah. bridge. Uh, so the, the shipping, the cargo shipping could still come in. Yeah. It'd be a bit of a nuisance nowadays because obviously <laughs> the traffic's held up while the bridge opens and largely now it's ceremonial when it opens. It opens about a thousand times a year. Yeah. yeah so to be times. honest, yeah, it, it's, I mean, you see these big vessels come in, especially occasionally you see these Russian super yachts that will come in and so on, yeah. you know, so the bridge needs to open for them. But most of the traffic on the Thames is uh, water buses and police launches and so on. And they can get under the bridge, at certainly at low tide and some of them at high tide as well. Um, but uh, talking of uh, the traffic, um, one point in the 1990s, uh, Bill Clinton, the American president, came to visit. And he went with Tony Blair, the prime minister at the time, to uh, one of Tony's restaurants, favourite restaurants on the, in the south of the river. And the motorcade was coming along and they got sort of strung out and Tony's Blair's car came through and then suddenly the signal started flashing, the bridge was going to open. And you've got the President of the United States and you've got the people saying, I don't care who you are, mate, you're staying there. <laughs> and so Clinton had to sit there Great and wait story. for the bridge, which I'm sure you've seen, yes, it takes yes, ages to come up. And they ages to go down again. Yeah. So he's sitting there drumming his fingers, you know, uh, the the leader of one of the great superpowers of the world being told he can't cross the bridge by some jobsworth who's going to bring yeah, it up. No, great know? story, yeah. great story. And I'm going to go back to churches, mm. one church in particular. Yeah. And I'd like you to explain the church. I'll do my best. St Mary Le Beau, why have I touched on that <clears throat> church? Ah, probably because the bells that hang in the tower. Because um, St. Mary Le Beau has the Bow Bells, and if you are born within earshot of the Bow Bells, you're a proper Londoner, a proper Cockney. That's right, because it's a popular misconception. <clears throat> amount of people that think it's Bow Church down at Bow, and in fact it's not. It is on Cheapside. Yeah, that's right. I think it's because people tend to think that Cockney means an East Ender, whereas really it just means a Londoner. 
So, uh, for instance, uh, John Keats, the great poet, he was a Cockney poet, uh, and he was born around the Moorgate area. And William Blake, again, another poet uh, and artist, he was born in Soho. So, you know, it doesn't matter whereabouts in London you are. If you're a Londoner, you're a Cockney. But uh, we, as you say, you've got uh, Bow Church or the Church of St. Mary Stratford Bow, to give it its full name, um, down in an area which got its name because of the bow-shaped arches of the bridge over the River Lee, which incidentally is how Bow Church gets its name, not because of it's a bridge, but if you go underneath the church, which you can still do, and you can see the bow-shaped arches that support the building from the old medieval building, uh, the one that was destroyed in the Great Fire. But just to be correct, so true Cockney is born within the sound of bow bells, which I suppose years ago you'd have heard the bells of a greater distance than you would do nowadays. Oh, yeah, you didn't have the noise pollution that you do now. And uh, the bow bells, well, one of them anyway, was used as the curfew bell. In the days when London was surrounded by a wall and had all those gates in it. And so the bell would ring to let people know the gates were going to close. And that would be picked up by other churches nearer the gates and they would ring out as well. So everyone knew it's time to stop what you're doing and get back inside. Because once the gates are closed, they're not opening until the morning. Oh, right. And if you were left outside, that was your lot. Yeah. You could try and scale the wall. <laughs> but they, the, the wall was quite high up. And, of course, you'd have the watch going around the wall at night time who, incidentally, were armed. They had uh, bows and halberds, those long sort of like axes on big poles and so on, and they would patrol the wall. Uh, some would patrol the wall and some would patrol the riverfront. Oh, right. mm. OK. Make certain you're home before dark. Absolutely. Um, now, the city, as we all know, is yeah. now a major financial centre. Mm. How did that happen? What's the development of that? Well, London was based on trade from the beginning, as I mentioned, with these traders there. And we know that uh, within the first few decades of the Romans, that not only was London an, a port uh, exporting, mainly lead, you know, um, but we know that there were financial dealers already because Tacitus in his annals, he tells us that London was famous for its uh, comiatus, its commodities, its em exports, and its negotiatores. Now, these were a particular type of dealers. They didn't deal in commodities. They dealt in the market. They were investors. They were the you know they were playing the markets. Right. So it, from the earliest days, um, it was a, a place of financial dealing. But it all really starts with the Royal Exchange. I'm sure you've seen the Royal yeah, Exchange yeah, opposite Cornhill, the Bank of England, yeah, yeah. Bank of England on Cornhill there, yeah. Cornhill and Threadneedle Street. Yeah. Um, nowadays, it's a high-end shopping centre, and uh, that building's from 1844, so it's the third on that site. But the original one was a place where merchants and traders would gather together. And it was copied from the one at Antwerp in the Low Countries, or nowadays Belgium, uh, which was the centre of finance in medieval Europe. And the exchange was the reason, because the merchants and traders would come there and they would negotiate and trade and deal. Uh, Venice had one as well. That was an important financial centre. London didn't have one. And then Thomas Gresham, a financier, built the original Royal Exchange. And all the traders who used to trade on the streets, literally, suddenly had somewhere they could go. And that is the beginning of the story. And then all these trading cliques would develop within the Royal Exchange, and they would find that they needed somewhere more convenient. And so that's where they start moving to the coffee houses. 
And so you would get specific traders in specific things would move to specific coffee houses. So not far from the Royal Exchange, you've got the Jamaica Wine House pub. So Michael's Alley. Yep. Where uh, Pasca Rosé, who was a Croatian, opened the first coffee house in London in 1652. He was actually Croatian, but he used to dress like a Turk because the Turks were to coffee then what the Italians are now. And so he opened his uh, coffee house there. But uh, it was to become the Jamaica coffee house dealing with West India merchants and Turkey merchants, uh, as in the place, not the, the bird. Yeah. Um, but also you had near there the Jerusalem coffee house, which dealt with the Far East. So China, India, and then later on Australia. But that's also where the dealers in non-ferrous metals used to go. It's where the London Metal Exchange was born. So all the coffee houses become home to these specific trading cliques, which then, again, outgrow the coffee houses and they start getting their own accommodation. So the stockbrokers, for instance, they were in Jonathan's Coffee House, just off of um, Cornhill on Change Alley. And then they moved eventually to Threadneedle Street in 1802 to a purpose-built home. And they were there for over two centuries till they moved out to Paternoster Square in 2004. Right, by St Paul's Cathedral. Yeah, so that's roughly um, the timeline for the, the big financial centres of the city. And the development of the city in terms of buildings <clears throat> now. I mean, even I could remember, um, yeah. and I'm not that old, um, there weren't that many tall buildings in the city that's um, right. I mean, the Lloyd's building was the first sort of tall one I can remember going up. That's right. Well, I mean, uh, a little while ago, I found a photo I'd taken from Waterloo Bridge in the 1980s, and the only tall building you can see is the old Nat West building, right. or Tower, Tower 42, 42 yep. as it's known yep. now. The tall buildings really start coming in in the 1990s, and the city didn't want any. I thought, we're not having big tall buildings here. We're too small. Uh, but then inevitably the banks and the insurance companies started putting pressure on the city and they said, you know, if you don't have these tall buildings, these companies won't come and trade. Because there were lots of buildings in the city that had office space to let, you know, see, to let signs outside and no one was renting them. They said, well, put nice big prestigious buildings up and it will entice these companies in. So the city gave in, but it said, we'll have your tall buildings, yeah, but you're not dominating the city. You're sticking them all together. And it told them they have to be in the northeastern uh, corner of the city. So uh, from Fenchurch Street north up to the uh, St. Mary Axe, Bishopsgate right. area. So we've got the Gherkin, mm. the walkie-talkie building, because obviously, invariably, we'll give them nicknames. Oh, everything has to have a nickname these days, doesn't it? Yeah. yeah. Walkie-talkie, the scalpel, the cheese grater, and so on. Um but, uh, well, funny you should mention the Fenchurch Street uh, building, the um, walkie-talkie. That's the only one that's south of Fenchurch Street. So all the others are from Fenchurch Street northwards. Going north, yeah. yes, absolutely. Um, that's why they're all jumbled up. It looks a right mess, but uh, that was the only way. Because, as well, they were worried about the archaeology. And that way they could minimise any damage to uh, the archaeological sites that there are throughout the city, which cross Talking of damage, of course... Um, the Blitz, mm. the Blitz on London in, during the Second World War. Yeah. Did that have a lot of effect on the city? Oh, hugely. Um, the initial impact of the Blitz was the East End, as I'm sure you know, the docks and yes. so on. Uh, but it moved upriver 
and eventually it reached the city and the city was bombed a few times but it's really december 1940 the 29th of december is known in city history as the second great fire of london when incendiary bombs were just rained down on the city and the whole place was burning and a load of buildings were lost some were gutted some were lost and Afterwards, of course, they had to be put back together again. And uh, that's where you get a greater reduction in the number of parish churches. So you get some of them that were left as ruins that subsequently have become quite attractive gardens. So you've got Christchurch Greyfriars just to the north of St Paul's, which is a garden just by the old post office building. Uh, but particularly St Dunstan in the east near Tower Hill, uh, where you've got this... Uh, gothic-looking church, although a lot of it was rebuilt in the Victorian period, um, but it's like it's been reclaimed by nature. You've got all these plants climbing around it and that sort of thing. It's extremely attractive. Good place to go with the sandwiches at lunchtime. And famous individuals associated with the city. Is there anybody you feel we should talk about? Ooh, where do you want to start? I mean, um, I suppose the, the most famous individual is good old Dick Whittington the famous pantomime character. Um, Richard Whittington was real. And uh, we mentioned money lending, but he was a money lender. And he had some uh, quite exclusive clients, including King Henry IV and uh, Richard II. And I think Richard Henry V as well. And anyway, he, um, he was a younger son. He came from the West Country, Gloucestershire, but he was a younger son. And in those days, land was important. And so you wanted to keep the estate together. So that's why the eldest boy inherited to keep it all together rather than it being split up. So he came to London and he was apprenticed as a mercer, a trader in luxury goods. He was apprenticed to his uncle, funnily enough. He was the, the master craftsman. Um, and Whittington was a mercer, but also a moneylender. And he actually became extremely rich. Now, he and his wife, Alice, didn't have any children, which is usually a spur to philanthropy. Um, and so he did leave a lot of money after he died for good works, but he did a lot while he was alive as well. Uh, he established a library at the Guildhall. He established some public toilets on the River Thames, flushed by the, the river water, and so on. He established a ward at St Thomas's Hospital across the river for unmarried mothers. And so looking after them for their you know, uh, maternity, that kind of thing. And uh, also conduits. These were uh, fresh water supplies, free fresh water supplies, bringing in water from springs outside the city. So he did a lot of stuff while he was alive. And after he died in his will, he left money to the city and money to his livery company, the Mercers, in order to carry on. And uh, the Mercers established a charity, the Whittington Charity, which is still going. Um, that's the thing about the livery companies. Nowadays, they're charitable bodies. They yes. don't, very few of them have connections with the trades they represent. Right. And just to sort of finish off, yeah. um, how is the future of the city? Where are we going with this? Now, that has become interesting because of COVID. Uh, that showed what, to be honest, most people I think suspected all along, which is that you don't need to be in a particular place to carry out your business. With the telecommunications that we have, you can work from home very easily. And in fact, 
businesses have had to persuade people to start coming back to London. And, uh, you know, a lot of businesses have actually found it quite convenient to let their people carry on working from home. Because, of course, the city doesn't have a large residential population, does it? No. No, of the 25 wards, only four are properly residential. You've got Aldersgate and Cripplegate, which is where the Barbican Arts Complex is. You've got Port Soken. Sorry, I forgot the name for a minute. The Port Soken ward at Aldgate. And you've got Queen Hythe. Uh, around the old uh, dock there, you know, the medieval dock, actually a Roman dock, uh, Hythe being an old English word for a landing place. So you've got them there, but apart from that, it's largely non-residential. And that's because of the city creating itself as a specialist financial area. So the fewer residents you've got, the less you have to worry about them and their objection to tall buildings and things like that. David? Once again, fascinating conversation. I think I might go and have a wander around the city on Sunday. It's always a good day to do it. It is, it is. Yeah, although it's becoming less quiet these days. Thank you very much indeed. You're very welcome. A pleasure. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hi, I'm Una Chaplin, and I'm the host of a new podcast called Hollywood Exiles. It tells the story of how my grandfather, Charlie Chaplin, and many others were caught up in a campaign to root out communism in Hollywood. It's a story of glamour and scandal and political intrigue and a battle for the soul of a nation. Hollywood Exiles from CBC Podcasts and the BBC World Service. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. <laughs>